everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing. Very often, those writers have been recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show, or it's a rejoinder episode and they've been on the show already, and that's what this is. Never Angeline North is our guest again. She's the author of the books Sea Witch from Inside the Castle, Careful Mountain from CCM, Sarah or the Existence of Fire from Horse Less Press, and Wolf Doctors from Artifice Books. She lives in beautiful Olympia, Washington with her girlfriend, her girlfriend's boyfriend, their dog, a snake, and two rats. She is online at never.horse, and her new book is out through Apocalypse Party Press, and it's called Rain Bear, with nine exclamation points at the end. Before we get into our conversation with Never, I'd like to remind you that you can support this show financially through Patreon at patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. You can throw a one-time donation at me over at paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe, or you can buy my book. It's called Tired. You can support the show for free by subscribing on the various podcatchers you use, giving it a five-star rating if your podcatcher allows for ratings, and tweeting, retweeting, and posting about it on whatever social media you use now that Twitter is, well, you know. So without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Never. The thing that struck me about Rain Bear... Um, and that struck me about Sea Witch too, and I don't know if I really like talked about it in in a way that illustrated how I feel about it. Um, in the sort of middle section of Rain Bear, uh, there's the two children, uh, the son of the rabbi and the son of the fire king, who are talking, and the way that they talk to each other is like a way that I really like. Like it's not. I don't know. It doesn't necessarily feel like supernatural, uh, not supernatural, like like fantastical. It doesn't feel, you know, particularly like the way that people talk in real life. But it like kind of illustrates how people should talk to each other sometimes. <laughs> you know, like it's just very, it's very twenty twenties. Very like, are you prepared? are you in a headspace to hear something that might be upsetting to you right now sort of thing, but like two people talking face to face. Um, sure. And it just strikes me as very loving. And there's scenes like that in, in Sea Witch too, where people talk to each other in that same manner. And I don't know if you talk to your uh, friends like that in, in real life and that's where you're pulling it from, or if it's like an aspirational something or other, but um, it's something that I find unique to your writing in my experience and something that I really enjoy. I think it's, um, it comes from how I would, I guess aspirational. Yeah. Um, it, I think it comes from a place of like, like wouldn't it be great if, if 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 every person like had the care and the time and the energy to like show such great respect for each other's humanity in like how we we interact with each other um and and it and it comes from that the de the desire for for the, the desire for myself to like want to live in that world 
Um, and and there are moments, I think, when I feel like I am able to be that person or when other people have been able to be that person for me. And, and I think that's um, where I got that from. Also, I... Um, I for my job, I, I work as a facilitator of support groups for queer youth. Mm. Um, and, and it is very, I think, especially that, that like, like, I, I'm not sure exactly what passages you're referencing, but the, 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 like, that, like, kind of example you gave is like very much something that comes to me, I think, through sort of like, it is sort of support groupies, you know, like, especially yeah. for a facilitator in a support group um and it's and and travels to me via yeah like i guess kind of like mental health radical mental health circles and stuff like that right yeah and the the first section of the book so the book is in three sections and it's like weaving storylines um but the first section is about a person who lives in a coffee shop who loves people and and that's their job um i'm very interested to know like where that comes from well like where you got the idea for that section of the book um so i from from sort of different places um that it, it felt like a, a median between two jobs that i've had one job is my current job as a facilitator of support groups. The other job as a sex worker. Mm. And it's it's sort of the halfway point between those two jobs. And being someone who's had both of those jobs, it's like it's like um interesting how it's interesting to me how in our relationships um in, in romantic relationships, there's this kind of gray area between sex and love and like, and like the conflation of sex and love in all of these different ways that we get upside down in all these different ways and that we get right, you know? Um, and it's not to say that there's no crossover there um, because there, there definitely is crossover there, but it, but it's also like, um, I think it's interesting to me the because the character has the attitude of a sex worker um, or or maybe of a some sort of uh, mental health support worker with good boundaries, hmm. right? It's like I unlove everyone as soon as this is over. But that runs so contrary to our ideas about love. And I think I think our cultural ideas about love are, are very much um, um, this idea of love is something that is sort of involuntary um, and not something you can just turn on when someone sits in front of you. Um, and um, it was interesting me to me to place it in that sort of professional context. Um, and because it just, one of my favorite things to do in writing and one of the things that I love about writing is that you can just say something and it's true. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And but sometimes what you leave out is what makes something interesting. Like leaving out. Well, we, what do you mean she sits across from people and loves them? And it's like, well, she just does. And then you just got to live with that and see, and and continue with the book. And you get glimpses of how she explains it, but she's not the most reliable of narrators. And she seems to have a, some assumption that people have some idea what she means when she says that. So you don't really get the full picture and you're, and, and, and it's more interesting because you don't get the full picture to me. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I think I like that a, a lot about writing too, that you just, some of the things you can like purposefully over explain and then on the other hand you can just say you can you can offer something like love and then people have to you know it colors the story based on the reader's definition of what that means um if they're willing to even like let their own definition be it instead of trying to figure out what yours is the entire time that's um not to take too much of an aside, but it is related to the book somewhat. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the things that I find really interesting about very old, some of the very old Jewish texts that I read um, or was reading when I was writing this book. It's like when you read something like the Talmud, um, they'll tell you a story and it'll be an insane story. It'll, it'll just be, and it'll be a story that begs you to ask one question, like, just like one of some pretty basic questions of like, well, why the fuck would somebody do that? Or, or like these kind of things. And instead, and, and, and the, the Talmud has a, a built-in layer of like history to it. So it's got the Mishnah and then there's the Gemara and the Gemara is the rabbis who came after the Mishnah era. And they're asking questions about what they're reading in the Gemara. Mm-hmm. So you get the dialogue of the, the, the Mishnah era rabbis, and then you got the dialogue of the Gemara era rabbis about what they wrote about the Mishnah. So you get, you'll get this insane story from the Tanaim, from the, 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 um, the, the Mishnah era rabbis. And, and then the Gemara era rabbis, instead of asking the question that would be logical to ask, instead ask some really tiny little detail-oriented question that's mostly has to do with clarifying jewish law Mm -hmm. and so it'll be like you know they could say this isn't an exact example but like you know they'll they'll talk about somebody like you know they could say somebody is like like walking around beating up bears with their spit you know and 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 they'll say the, 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 then the questions that are asked are, well, what if the bears arrive on the Shabbos and you and you you're spitting on the Shabbos? And instead of how the fuck does somebody beat up bears with spit? You know, like it's just never the obvious question, and it's like that type of giving, like giving too much detail in the wrong way and not enough in the right way or the way way a reader might want is really interesting to me. Yeah, and that's actually not too much of an aside because I do remember reading maybe on Twitter or something a while back where you, you kind of talked about how this was like your Jewish book and in yeah. kind of in the same way that Sea Witch was your, your trans book, which we've discussed yeah. as kind of yes and kind of no and 
as I've the more trans writers I talk to, we have kind of come to the conclusion that a trans book is like not the most helpful way of describing a book anyway. Um, but in the last time we very briefly like touched on um, being Jewish and since then I've become like a fan, I guess, of Jewish mysticism, like not a scholar, definitely not a practitioner, but like big fan. Uh, I think Merkava yeah. mysticism is really cool. Um, descending into the earth and having these like chambers and, and, and things. Um, so I guess you kind of already touched on some of the reading you were doing, but like how intentional was like, like were you doing the reading for the book or just kind of like at the same time? And um, you know, how was how have the two like influenced each other kind of in the after writing of a book stage now? So I, I started writing this book when I was about one year into the process of converting to Judaism. And so I was reading a ton of Jewish text very intentionally for that process. And right. just because as I was diving in, I was getting interested in going down all these rabbit holes. And so I was doing it just for myself, more or less, not necessarily intentionally for this book. Um, but once I was there, I couldn't help but get ideas of ways I could span, expand this book in this direction. And I couldn't help but let that sort of infect this book. Um, and um, uh, it was, um, I think, became very, very explicit for me. Um, like, I was playing with some of the sort of Kabbalistic sort of references in... So when I, when I first wrote this, I wrote the third section first. So the, the section that's the, um, <clears throat> the um, almost like diary entry type stuff from the character who's like living in the room, um, uh, Muriel Claudia, um, she, uh, that came first. That was the original um, part that I was writing. And I got to a point with that where I realized that it, it I needed this world needed to expand there needed to be more to it and that's when i started writing the coffee shop bit and i had already started playing with some jewish ideas in that third section and um uh and i was oh yeah then i then i i added about halfway through writing that I added in the coffee shop character and was going back and forth. And then once I got to writing <clears throat> what is what is now the second section of the book um, with the um, the two um, children of the 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 ch child of the rabbi and the child of the the volcano king, um, uh, that section is where I was. I had, it was inspired by, I had just been reading the tales of Rebbe Nachman, who was a, um, an 17th, 18th century, um, Jewish mystic 
um, he was the nephew of the founder of Hasidism. Mm. Um, and uh, I believe he was the nephew, maybe great nephew or something like that, but he was in related in some way to the founder. Um, and um, <clears throat> he wrote these stories that were sort of supposed to be these mystical parables. Um, and they are very long and very winding and deeply strange and they make all kinds of um logical leaps that are very counterintuitive and especially reading them in translation in english because they're originally written in yiddish and hebrew um they are um you get this like very strange sort of style of writing emerges where there will be these parentheses, these, these, these long parentheticals that explain a word or a, a statement that um, um, repeat like all the time. Like you'll have like the fact that I have, um, these two characters are referred to as children even into their like 30s and 40s because there's no gender world neutral world word for well there's offspring hmm. but that's generally not used in the singular and it doesn't quite work so like if you were translating from a language that had a gender neutral word for like son or daughter then you could use that word to describe that character through the whole story. Um, but it doesn't quite work, and it makes them sound like they're a child of their whole life if you try to do it in English. So what I did is I did that, but then put long parentheticals after it every single time because that was it evoked this style of translated writing that I was reading. Mm. Uh, and then these little subheads, like bracket, like, and then it says a thing like, the part where you know it'll say like um the section where um the the uh they the two children um journey into the mountain in search of the vomit bird or whatever and like they're almost spoilers sometimes mm -hmm. and that was also a feature of these translations that i was reading um and so i was i was directly adopting the style of these because the, these rabbi rabbi nachman stories were like they were so stylistically and narratively bizarre and elicited me this like joyous reaction from me that it only happens when I read some of my like favorite experimental writers. And I wanted to see if I could, I basically wanted to just do a sort of tribute to Rebbe Nachman's writing style uh, especially as read in translation in that section and to just see if I could make something that was like as batshit as what he wrote. And I don't think I quite did it. Like, I think his is more batshit still, but, um, but it was so fun to do and it was fun. Um, taking a big part of the way this narrative happened is I, I, you know, this is the first traditional, novel i've written that wasn't written in like 
weird little chunks that then just sort of happen and you you sort of deal with them happening i wanted it to flow like a novel flows and in doing so i it ended up i'm so adhd i can't sit down and write a narrative sort of front to back um and so what ended up happening was i wrote a a couple narratives and found ways to stitch them together um that and to interweave them and sort of braid them together um and it led to this this really strange structure that i ended up really liking um I think when I originally sat down to write this book, I thought had the thought that it might be more marketable than something like Sea Witch, and I I don't think it's at all. Um, kind of because of that like really bizarre structure, but I thought maybe just the fact that they were paragraphs that led into paragraphs, and there weren't a bazillion pictures and scribbles and these kind of things might make it more adaptable or something. But it, it's. Um, it at least led to something that I, I'm I'm really happy with how it came out, and that ultimately is like what I, my goal for anything I make is. Yeah, definitely. I. It's weird to open a book by an author you know and be shocked at how normal it looks. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I think that's a very like unique position I get to be in where I'm like, wait a minute, what? There's no pictures. <laughs> there's, no, there's no lines everywhere. It's just words. Yeah. All right. Well, um, but I hope I, I made up for it by how insane the words are. <laughs> I think so. Uh, yeah. I mean, you have a vomit bird, you have a rain bear. Um, yeah. I like the parentheticals. I feel like they worked, um, for me, kind of in like i guess an unintentional way lately in michigan there's uh there's all like the dumb school board stuff with people trying to ban the book gender queer because i guess it has you know children in it or whatever and so like that almost the parentheticals almost felt like a reaction to that but like couldn't have been because you know i'm reading it simultaneous to these things but it's like just so everyone's cool right like yeah they're not children they're adults i mean it was also a reaction to that in the sense of um uh in the sense of not necessarily directly that book but i think there i mean the idea of of queer and trans people as some sort of child molesters is one that is that is an age-old stereotype and one that, um, as someone who I've been a children's librarian, I've, you know, I work with teens right now, like that follows me and that haunts me and yeah. that I am on guard about constantly. I, there was, there were, have been points in my life, especially early transition, where I was terrified to be in any space where that children were in for fear that someone would accuse me of existing in that space in a way that was somehow predatory, you know? Um, and I think that, um, you know, in, in online spaces, there are, you know, constantly accusations of, of, of 
trans people and queer people being predators, both from the right and from people who are supposedly like not on the right, you know, people who are supposedly progressives, like still like, like throwing these things out. And, and I think that that is, is frequently whether frequently coming from stereotype and coming from these, this fear we have of queerness and transness and particular types of queerness and transness as being predatory. Um, and, and I think that, that, that is, um, something that is, yeah, it, you know, it's a big fear of mine. It's something that I've, and so that playing for laughs, that, that kind of like, like hyper defensiveness of my own was was something that I was doing very intentionally and also like knowing that there would be I'd I'd get a chuckle out of some some trans women who who read it and knew exactly the feeling I was talking about. And also like it's cool that that people who aren't trans women can also like, you know, have these reference points because it's, you know, it's it's front page news now these days. Um, you know, with the 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 book bans and the, you know, the accusations of grooming and all this stuff from literally any time like any queer people exist um it's 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 you know which the same thing happened in the 90s when when in the 80s and 90s when gay people were were coming out and 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 also existing as teachers or as whatever you know it's the, it's just the same same old shit over again um and um so yeah i uh you you picked up correctly yeah. on that yeah um i mean it goes back like all the way doesn't it like i was talking to my wife this morning about blood libel and how it's like it's the same it's the same thing right so the jews are taking right. the christian children and doing terrible yep. things to them um if you hate a group enough, think of the children is always a useful refrain in getting others to hate them as well. Yeah. Too bad nobody actually thinks about children. Oh, oh no, no one, <laughs> none of this actually improves children's lives in any way whatsoever. No. And, um, yeah. It's, children, children are just, a just, a something to, to rest your rifle on while you take aim at something else. Yeah. Um, the thing, I, I think we kind of talked about it with, with Sea Witch too, and I don't know, maybe it's just kind of like the, the, the imagery, like, that you use in your writing, the fact that, like, I don't know, Vomit Bird and Rain Bear and, and, and things that are so silly, like, I always kind of walk away from your writing feeling like it's so much more joyful than maybe it is, like, Again, I feel like we talked about this when we talked about Sea Witch, where I was like, man, it's like super cozy and everybody's having a good time. And you're like, yeah, but, you know, there's <laughs> there's other stuff in there, too. And I don't know, like, do you think that's uh, like an intentional thing on your part? Or is that just sort of like your aesthetic leaking into your writing and, and just, you know, kind of rebounding off? 
Oh, it's very intentional. I think I think there's uh, there's writing. I mean, creative creative work in general. I think is comes from a like space of play for me, hmm. um, and I think that experimental art is like begs to be a play space um a lot of my my favorite creators are 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 ones who create very playfully um and and i think that um i also think it's really interesting to mash something humorous next to something upsetting it creates strong reactions right and it can um serve to the humor can serve as a relief to let you go deeper and darker um and and still have readers follow you there um and not 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 put it down and and, and sort of tap out um and it can also be something to make make an upsetting thing more upsetting because it's followed by a moment of humor or some type of play. Um, I, I, I think humor is interesting. I, um, um, since, <laughs> since I was 11 years old, my favorite band has been They Might Be Giants. And, and I, think, I think a lot of people, people who I, I have not engaged maybe as deeply as um, with their lyrics and their discography as I have, which I guess is pretty deep considering they've been my favorite band since I was 11 years old and I'm turning 38 this week, um, is, is that they, so many of their songs are about mortality and death and just some real fucked up dark shit. And, yet they have constantly gotten sort of like slotted in this category of like like novelty music which is interesting to me and i don't even necessarily think it's wrong um i think it's it's wrong to dismiss them um because if they're making novelty music they're making really interesting novelty music deeply interesting novelty music um it's i i think it's you know they they use humor and play um to and while doing so talk about some really dark things um and i i think that that is something that has been interesting for me to me for a long time um is that idea of using humor and play to talk about very dark things and to i don't know the cone brothers do this also um uh you know I, I it's it's one of my favorite ways to engage it's a you know it's an acid trip that 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 shifts so fast that you don't even realize it's shifted until you you've gone real deep into some shit and you're like oh no i'm here now mm-hmm.